0: I have a very small voice, and so um, it doesn't bother me if you, you know, just make some commotion and let me know that you need more volume. Um, so my name is Linda Cavanas and most recently, before coming to Ohio, I lived in Southern California, um, that um, part of the world that has Hollywood and all that stuff and all the sin that comes with it. And um, my husband was the conference president in the Southern California Conference, and we were there for almost 20 years. And, um, and we, um, my husband always and I always said, Father, when he first went into ministry, we said, Father, we will go any place you send us but please don't ever send us to Southern California. <laughs> and wouldn't you know, that's where we ended up for the longest period of time. And we said, and we really would like to go to the North Pacific. And we never had an opportunity. Well, we actually had an opportunity, but it wasn't good timing. And so um, so while we were... In, in Southern California and in Nevada-Utah conference, um, we, I was privileged to be able to um, finish up my doctorate degree. And, um, and so I'm going to tell you about that in just a moment, but before I get into that explanation, I want to make a statement to you. You just ate, and I just ate. But because my brain, the survival organ, is worried about making sure that I'm keeping you engaged, and my brain is very active right now, yours is sitting kind of in neutral, and you're likely to get very sleepy. And so if that happens... I would invite you to just stand up and walk over to the side or something. You know there's an area right at the top of your brain stem. It's called the reticular activating system. And that's a very important part of your brain. If you see a person in a coma, you can know that their reticular activating system is not working well. It has to be communicating with at least one of the four cortical areas of the brain, the cortex, in order for you to stay alert. And if it isn't, you'll be in a coma. Well, I don't want you to become comatose. And so how you keep the reticular activating system active is by, um, getting some proprioception going. Sounds like a big word, and you probably aren't acquainted with it, but what it means is whenever your joints move, it sends signals to the RAS, the reticular activating system, and it helps you to stay alert. And so that's why I say if you start to shut down, your brain starts to shut down on you, just start moving something, some of your joints, and it will help just, you know, to perk you up a little bit. Okay, so um, <clears throat> while we, uh, let me just show you the title. So you see, Heart, Mind, and Eternal Life. And um, you can see that I've put the word retired. Um, I've taken this presentation around the world, um, South South Africa, um Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, um, Cambridge University, Harvard University, all over the U.S. and um, um, Ecuador, many, many places. Um, I have taken this presentation and provided it to usually Adventist groups, but not always. And when I talk to the non-Adventist groups, I still include some of the spirituality, but I have to be careful. Like at Harvard, when I'm presenting, if I talk about, you know, if I start getting too spiritual, the people just get up and they'll walk out. I mean, I've learned that. And so I have to kind of tone it to the audience. But still, God gave me what I'm sharing with you. And I feel an obligation to God to share with you what he gave to me. And so um, you'll see at the bottom of this slide, it says this presentation is copyright protected. And then it has my name. No duplication of any part without written permission. So why am I saying that if it's something God gave me? The reason is because I'm writing a book and the publisher doesn't want me to share all of this because they're afraid somebody else is going to pick it up and take away from the value of the book that I'm writing. And so, um, you wouldn't think that people would do that. And I do not think anyone here would do that. But to appease the publisher, I have to do that. Now, Pastor, I tried to make copies last yesterday afternoon, and um, the printer ran out of ink at the school, and I couldn't find another cartridge. And so I'm going to give you this copy, and you're welcome to make copies of this and to share it with, um, with your congregation if someone wants a copy. And I would have made copies for each of you but uh, you know, I I was in this is not where I typically work, and so I didn't have um, I didn't know where to find um, the ink for the uh, the printer. Uh, so just that little bit of an explanation. So here's where I'm going to lead you. Um, the the topics that we're going to cover. I'm going to share with you the idea of a fractal. Anybody know what a fractal is? I didn't know, okay? You do, very good. Um, uh, when you, you look into something, uh, you notice that
1: there's more to it, uh-huh. it has to, less to do with geometry a
0: lot? Yes, exactly. And it's, it's like a pattern that, um, you identify a pattern and if you, and so in a given entity, and uh, so like a fern, you look and you say, oh, I see a pattern there. And then you look, you pull out a sprig, and you see the same pattern. And you pull out another sprig, same pattern. So it's a pattern that you see in a given entity, whether you look at it in the big picture or under a microscope, you still see the same pattern. So I'm going to share that. You know, that idea um, was one that came to me when I was working on my dissertation, And, and let me give you a little background to the dissertation. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself because I need to give you the overview first, and so I'll talk to you about fractals that define you. You are a fractal, and I'm going to show you how. And then I'm going to talk to you about wholeness and holiness because God tells us to be holy, like he's holy, doesn't he? And there is a real beauty to this fractal construct that will help you be holy. And so I want to share that with you. And then I'm going to um, share with you some heart brain science. Now most people think of the heart just as a pump. And um, pretty much that's what it is. But interestingly, they have recently discovered that your heart has a little brain of its own. And I'm going to show you pictures that many cardiologists haven't seen yet of neurons in your heart. We used to think neurons were only in the brain. We knew that their axons could come streaming down into the body, to the muscles. But we thought neurons were only in the brain. And now we've discovered neurons in the heart. And they're talking now about the little heart brain. And so I'm going to share that information with you. By the way, the man who um, developed the first wearable heart pacemaker, anybody know who it was? His name is Earl Bakken. And you know where he lives? On the big island of Hawaii. And his house is shaking right now. And he's, you know, the air is you know, a real problem and all of that on the big island. I'm worried about him. I've been trying to get in touch with him. He's 93 years old now, and he he founded Medtronics, which is a company, a $45 billion company that makes implantable medical technologies like deep brain stimulators for Parkinson's disease and implantable insulin pumps, and pacemakers, and so on. For the past 13 years, or about 15 actually, he has been my mentor in heart-brain science. And he's a wonderful human being. I meant to put a picture of him in the presentation, but I forgot to. And uh, then, if we have time, I would like to talk to you about telomeres. And if I don't have time, then maybe I could give my presentation to uh, your pastor, and, um, and I can give him a little bit of help on it, and he could make a whole presentation to you on the telomere effect. And so um, if I don't have time, telomeres, by the way, do you know what telomeres are? Anybody know? Okay. One person. Yeah. It does. So, if you look at your chromosomes, they're in pairs. So this is one chromosome, this is one. And they're kind of like this. On the tips of them are areas called telomeres. And when you're born, they're a certain length. They're not this long. You know, it's way smaller. But every time your cells replicate, they shorten. The telomeres shorten. So they can tell by the length of your telomeres about how long you're going to live. And so there's a new book out called The Telomere Effect. And it's written by Elizabeth Blackburn and Elissa Eppel. Um, There's more than one book on telomeres out there but this is my favorite. She, Elizabeth Blackburn, is Nobel Peace Prize laureate and um, for what she discovered, because she discovered telomerase, the enzyme that's capable of lengthening your telomeres again. But there's a problem with that. And so she said, you know, because if you lengthen them uh, artificially, you can also uh, stimulate cancer cells to grow. And you don't want that to happen. And so she makes a recommendation of how to take care of your telomeres and to get them to lengthen or to stay healthy for a longer period of time. And do you know what? It sounds like Adventist teaching. I mean, it's absolutely thrilling. So I have a whole presentation on that that I can share with your pastor, and maybe sometime he could share that with you. And um, and so this is where I want to head with you. Okay. So um, this is a picture of my son, and my 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 husband, and my son Tad. Tad was about six years old when he started tripping and falling. And um, he was, I mean, my husband was youth director um, at camp, you know, in different conferences at the youth camps, and Tad was always the college staff's favorite of our three children because he had such a great sense of humor. But he started tripping and falling when he was six, and we took him to doctor after doctor, and no one was able to find an answer until when my husband was in Northern California Conference. Um, they, he was the youth director and then the secretary there of the conference. And, um, and we were introduced to Dr. Bruce Berg at UCSF Medical Center. and Dr. Berg was, it was known around the world for his expertise in Niemann-Pick disease. It's an extremely rare disease that affects children, and um, it's kind of like Lou Gehrig's disease, but for children. And so Tad started tripping and falling, and then when he would pick up his glass to drink, he would drop it, and then he would start choking because his, um, his ability to swallow... Swallowing is highly coordinated. I mean, it requires all kinds of functions to go on in order for you to swallow. We need to praise God every time we take a drink of water. I mean, it's so complex. And so he would start choking, and little by little he kept getting worse and worse. He was finally diagnosed at UCSF by Dr. Berg, and so I always um, put this slide in my presentation because when Tad was diagnosed, I was at that time working on my doctorate degree at UC Berkeley. And, um, and it was in language and literacy. I'm a reading specialist. And, um, and when he was diagnosed, the doctor said, there's very little research going on because the disease is so rare. And so we can't tell you how long he's going to live or how he's going to die, but he will die. There is no, there's no help for him. There's no treatment. We just have to help you keep him comfortable along the way. Well, this was, you, excuse me, this was just traumatic to me. And I thought, no research? And so I, I said to myself and to God, Father, please help me understand how I can help our son. And so I started studying about the brain. And, I, and there was a professor at Berkeley, Dr. Marion Diamond, who was very good in uh, connecting neuroscience to education. And so she became a mentor to me. And I would, every, everything that she was doing, I would try to learn from her. And so, um, so finally, um, I decided, um, you know, I, I'm not going to continue with language and literacy for my doctorate. I want to help, I want to find out how to help teachers. Understand the brain better so they can help kids learn better. And so that's what I did my dissertation on. Um, my husband was transferred about la- uh, away from the San Francisco Bay Area um, before I finished my doctorate at Berkeley. I had about four more classes to do and a dissertation. And thankfully, Andrews University, I mean this is, this, I shouldn't be publicizing this because typically universities will not take huge amounts of credit from one university to their program. You have to do the majority of it at the, on their campus. But Andrews did allow me to do that because they knew I was at a major university. And so Andrews um, finished me up. And so when it came time for me to do my dissertation, I said to my husband, sweetheart, what should I write about? And he said, well, he said, every so often, you know, we lived in a ranch style home on a high hill in Southern California, overlooking Los Angeles and Burbank and Glendale. And um, my office was at this end of the house, and my husband's office was at that end. And I would be reading the neuroscience, and, you know, I'm, cu- I'm quite, you know, um, goofy and expressive at times, and so I would come across this information, and I would start squealing running the full length of the house, and I would run in and shake my husband and say, sweetheart, you won't believe what I found in the neuroscience that is underscoring what Ellen White said 100 years ago. And so over and over, so Larry said to me, why don't you make that your dissertation study? Well, I presented the idea to the faculty at Andrews, and they said, we think that is a great idea. And so always, before I begin this presentation, I always salute Tad, because if it hadn't been for Tad, I would not be able to share with you what I'm sharing today. Um, Tad passed away just before his 17th birthday, but his faith was so strong. And he knew that he had a place in heaven and that, you know, there was nothing to be worried about. I could tell you stories that would just thrill your heart with this child's uh, faith and his confidence in God. And this is my husband, Larry. Now, uh, you're going to have to watch me be disequilibrated for just a minute. He died two years ago. And... uh, Hang on, I get over it, okay? I always do this, I try not to, but it happens. Um, About two weeks after we moved to Dayton, um, he he retired, and so I retired, and moved to Dayton so we could be across the street from our daughter and son-in-law. I don't know if you know the Mancher family and Kettering. um, our son-in-law is from that family and, um, and so we live in Springboro and um, <clears throat> two weeks after we arrived there Larry said to me sweetheart I'm not feeling well and so I took him to the doctor and it took a few weeks for them to pinpoint it but they said you're very atypical but you have pancreatic cancer and so he died within um like two two and a half months and um and so but he was such an enabler he he believed in my research and my studies equally as much as I did, and he made it possible for me to um to be able to do the stu- the uh, research that i that I was able to do at La Sierra University. Okay, so one of the things <clears throat> as you see on the screen um, that I mentioned that I was wanted to share with you is this fractal construct. <clears throat> so this is a pattern that defines you. I mean, there are all different kinds of fractals, all different shapes, all different forms, all different functions. But I think I have postulated that there is a fractal that defines you and me at in the whole of who we are, every organ of who we are, and every cell of who we are. And so, I want to um, I want to help you understand this. So here's a definition of a fractal. It's really simple. A fractal is a pattern that is replicated in a given entity at all levels of form or function. So, um, so let's take a look at this fractal. So, um, so this one you can make with, um, you know, pencil and paper. So, this so this big shape here. It is smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And smaller. So that's a fractal. It takes this shape, this shape, to make up all these other shapes. And so that is a fractal. This is a fractal also. I have lots of pictures of fractals, but I just, um, because I want to hurry and get to all of the information I'm sharing with you. See, look, this looks like, this looks like the same thing as the big one, doesn't it? It's what I was afraid was gonna happen. So that's why I have three of these things. And, uh, and so, so here is the smaller shape. And look, here it is again. And right here it is again. And if you could separate it out if our pixels were big enough or fine enough, we could, um, we could see it even smaller. So that fern is a fractal also, just like you are. So so now, this doesn't always work. But if it will, it's really interesting. You know how Ezekiel talks about a wheel within a wheel? Cannot locate the Internet server or proxy server. Nuts. So, um, but... It, this one, it shows a big wheel that has little wheels in it, and then it keeps getting bigger, you know. The little one keeps getting bigger and bigger. So you can see how that wheel is made up of smaller wheels and so on. It's a wheel within a wheel. Sorry, it isn't going to work. And so what I want to share with you is this idea that there is a triad of wholeness that relates to what we have been taught for, I mean, ever since Plato and Aristotle and so on, they've talked about mind, body, and spirit. And so um, Ellen White, when she defines true education, she says true education is the harmonious development of the physical, mental, mental, And spiritual powers in preparation for service. Now, she, you know, it's one thing for us to nurture all three parts of who we are, but she says it's for the purpose of service. And that is where we become disequilibrated. So if we're constantly taking in to improve our body or our mind or our spirit, that's good. We need to do that. But if we only do that, if we're only bringing in to benefit ourself, then we become like the Dead Sea, which get it takes in all this water, but it doesn't have a good way, an efficient way of giving back to the surroundings to keep the surroundings healthy and so consequently it kind of becomes stagnant and that's the way we become when we're only taking in for our benefit. If we don't become disequilibrated or knocked off balance and have to regain our balance then we're not going to stay healthy. In fact, Well, I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a bit. And so, here we have um, a skewed triad, okay? Or a skewed fractal. In public education, you know, and I've trained many, many teachers for public education as well as Adventist education, and I tell them all, if you stretch out this one piece, if you keep stretching it, what's going to happen to the, uh, the other two arms? They'll just collapse into a flat line, won't they? And flat lining is not a good state to be in. You want to you want to stay uh, plumped up and um, but in public school when budgets are cut and that happens often, the first things to go are the phys-ed programs, unless they're making a lot of money off of it, and the arts. And um, and so, you know, those are considered not as important as this mental part. But, folks, you know, you can study scripture. You can study Ellen White. You can study uh, the neuroscience. You can study everything Currently that is out there about how to best, you know, bring our, our self into optimal function. And they all are saying that these three parts are critically important. And so, um, so here we have, um, I'm going to show you now how this triad pattern, this fractal pattern, that I'm saying exists, how it defines your tiny little neurons that your pastor talked about this morning in in, uh, the sermon, how it defines uh, your brain, how it defines your heart, how it defines the whole of who we are. And so let's look first at the neuron. The neuron has three major parts, three major parts. There are more parts than that, but if you look at the big picture, there are three major parts. And so this, like the fingers, you know, this looks kind of like a neuron, your hand and your arm. So the fingers are like, they're called dendrites on the neuron. And they respond to other neurons. So this neuron will send a signal down its axon, and this axon is going to skew a little bit of chemistry, neurochemicals, into this little space between this neuron and this neuron. They don't actually touch each other. And uh, so the chemicals coming from here will stimulate these uh, dendrites and the dendrites then will send um, an electrical signal down to the soma, the second part of the neuron. Now the soma is like the little brain of the neuron. So this is like the social emotional part of the neuron. It's responding. A dendrite responds to the society of other neurons, so it's social, and it responds to the neurochemistry, which is uh, emotion. So we get our emotions from neurochemicals, okay? So this is the social-emotional part of the neuron. This is the little brain of the neuron. Now, you may... You may want to step back a little bit and say, a brain in the neuron, well, if you'll hold on just a minute, I'm going to boggle your mind with what's going on in a cell. And um, there are whole books written about it, but I can give you one little quote that will just... It, I hope it will blow your mind like it blew mine. And so the decision is made here, am I going to take this this information that's coming in from the dendrites and send an action potential down the axon, or should this information be inhibited? Because you know, just like drug companies make inhibitors, they make, some drugs are meant to be inhibitors and some are meant to activate, and so um, so this is the little brain, and then the axon carries the action potential to another neuron, and so three major parts: social, emotional, mental, and physical. Okay, just like that um, that graph up there or that. Um, example of what I'm saying is a fractal, the triad fractal. And so um, so let's look at a neuron um, more specifically. See this neuron up here? It's, it's what we would call impoverished. It hasn't been stimulated very much. Did you know that if you stay connected with what I'm sharing with you and you think about what I'm sharing with you, by the time you walk out that door, you're going to have some extensions already coming away from the dendrites in your, with throughout your brain. I mean, within five minutes, we can get a little bitty nubbin to start growing. Within fifteen minutes, it's even more. But this one, look at this one, how much? How many more branches you see compared to this one. So you can get all of these branches going and um, say for four days, you really think hard and you learn a lot in four days. If you go to Hawaii and lie down in a hammock and swing and do nothing for the next four days, you can lose a lot of that. And so, um, so you need to keep your brain functioning. The more you repeat, you know, um, and, and, uh, utilize what you're learning, the, the, um, more stayed the pathways will be throughout your brain. So Dr. Diamond at Berkeley, uh, says, um, um, she says, I believe She's known around the world for her expertise in neuroscience. But she says if, um, if you will um, stimulate your brain to keep growing even into later age, you, that can help you um, offset the onset of Alzheimer's disease. Now, different people, it depends on how you're taking care of your telomeres, okay? Okay. Um, if you're being not very thoughtful of your body and the health habits and so on um, then you know uh, those, those dendrite, dendritic formations are not going to give you the protection that, they, that it would if you were following a healthy lifestyle and so there are some you know um, some uh, reserves in that regard so for, for breakfast each morning, she's married to Dr. Arnold Scheibel. She's at Berkeley in the San Francisco Bay Area and he is at UCLA. And uh, they both do neuroscience research. And, um, and she says that for breakfast, they have on their toast, um, tofu, and she said they put marmalade on top of it to make it more palatable. And, um, and so I, I asked her, I said, why do you eat tofu on your toast? Why that specifically? And she said, because it is an excellent uh, a source of choline. And she said, from my research in uh, neuroscience, and in Alzheimer's disease, I know that one of the first things to deplete in your brain when Alzheimer's disease starts to set in is choline. And so you get choline in peanut butter and egg yolk and tofu and if you're not vegetarian, liver and some other things. But choline, acetylcholine, is really important for... If you're getting a good, healthy, balanced diet, you should be getting enough choline. It's one of the essential uh, amino acids. And so you want to keep these dendrites branching and growing. Now, this morning, the pastor said that um, there are a 100 billion neurons in your brain, and that's an estimate because you know nobody's ever actually counted them but that is the common estimate on how many neurons you have but for every one neuron you have 10 glial
1: cells
0: glial cells used to be thought of just as you know to carry food to the neurons or to help the neurons have some um some structure Or, you know, just to clean up after the neurons um, and so on. But now we know that in some cases, if you get a blow to the head or something and it damages some of your neurons, we know that in some cases, glial cells can mutate into neuron-like cells. So that they can help you overcome the damage that occurred to your brain. And so God, isn't God great that he, you know, has put these, oh my, I have so many things I want to share with you that have come to me that just, I mean, it just, it just makes me want to sing praises to God constantly because of the miraculous way he has put us together. And so back to this. So these are the dendrites, they communicate with the society of other neurons, and they they are activated by neurochemistry. So it's the social-emotional part, this is the soma, it's the little brain of the neuron, and this is the axon. This is the axon here, can't see it very well, soma and dendrites. So, three main parts, and it lines up with the fractal okay now let's go to um the brain let now okay, so now we looked at the microscopic level of the of the neuron now let's go larger let's look at an organ within our brain body, and I can talk about more than. Just the brain and the heart, but we don't have time. So I'm just going to use the brain and the heart for this afternoon. And so, uh, to show you this fractal. So there are three main parts of the brain. And, um, and not because I say so, but because Paul McLean, who was the director of the National Institutes of Health for a long period of time, he talks about. The triune brain, there are many more parts of the brain than just three, but these are the major sections of the brain, and I can take every one of those three major parts of the brain, and I can show you how each one of them is a little triad also, just like fractal form you go deeper and deeper and it keeps get you s- still see that um, that triad pattern and so the cortex is a- only a nickel thick it's only a nickel thick but that's where all of your um, conscious thought your um, you know your executive planning your morality um your, the sensory um, interpretation, like you touch something hot and a, an area of your cortex is going to help you know you touch something hot. So this is the conscious level of the brain. It's where your conscious thinking takes place here. And it's only a nickel thick. In that nickel thick, Uh, structure, there are six layers of different kinds of neurons there. Isn't that interesting? I mean, the deeper you go into the brain, the more complex it becomes and the more beautiful it becomes. So that's the mental part. And the physical part, so all the information coming from your cortex and your brain down to your body Has to go through your brain stem. If you get a tumor on, inside your brain stem, the doctors don't want to touch it. Because, do you know why? Because it's so complex as they're trying to get to that tumor, they will, they can easily cut Um, some other major pathway, and just like that, you could die. And so your heartbeat, your respiration, you know, um, all kinds of things are being controlled by your brainstem. So your brainstem and the cerebellum is coordinating your, your movements. The cerebellum, by the way, also has a little mental piece it has a little sensory piece as well as the physical piece. so this fractal you know you see it everywhere you go inside your brain and body it's, but so we we group this uh, brainstem cerebellum uh, as the physical component because it is um, it's what's keeping you alive it's allowing your brain, to keep you alive, to keep your physical body alive. And then the limbic area of your brain is in the center of your brain. So whenever any information is coming into your brain, it like, so I'm touching this right now and that information is going up my arm into my spinal cord, up into the brain stem, to the center of the brain. And there's a, uh, an organ in the limbic system called the thalamus, and it's like the sentinel keeping watch on every, all of your environment and all of the sensory information coming into your brain. And the thalamus, except for the sense of smell, I mean, the thalamus is the gateway to the cortex. And the, um, and so, The thalamus isn't going to let anything into the cortex uh, unless it has been, you know, monitored. Except for the sense of smell. Have you ever been walking down the sidewalk and you smell something and immediately it takes you back like 10 years to something that happened before and that smell reminds you of it? The fastest route to your cortex is the sense of smell. Now, hopefully, we'll have enough time, and I can share with you about oxytocin, which is when I have love and trust in my heart, it's going to extrude into the air around my body, and when I come close to you, you will subconsciously smell it. You're not consciously aware of it, but... If my oxytocin level is high, and I'm coming close to you, then you will smell it, and it will make your oxytocin level go up. Do you know how they describe oxytocin? The love or trust hormone. So when I have love in my heart, it's going to, without me saying anything, when I'm close to other people, it's going to, Imp, you know, it's going to have a positive benefit on them. That's one, another good reason for you to come to church. Because when we're all sitting here together and we're praising God and loving Him because He loves us so much, our oxytocin level goes up. Love or trust hormone. And we're smelling each other and we're benefiting each other you know when i was a teenager the you know the sarcastic thing to say was well smell you you know and now <laughs> now there's even more reason for us to smell each other <laughs> okay so here um so th- let's see the limbic area is the emotion center of the brain. There's a little organ in the limbic system in addition to the thalamus and the hypo- hypothalamus. You know, the thalamus is watching, you know, all the information that's coming in through your senses. The hypothalamus is right below it and it's t- keeping tabs on everything that's going on inside your body. Your hunger, your thirst, your th- sleepiness, you know, all of that. The hypothalamus is taking, you know, it's monitoring that. But there's, uh, there are two other ones: the hippocampus, which helps you with your memory, and the amygdala. The amygdala is real is not this big, but it's shaped kind of like an almond. And um, the amygdala is your fight or flight or freeze organ. So if information is coming, if you're smelling something that causes your amygdala to be alert or if you hear something that sounds distractive, you know, like a storm signal or whatever, your amygdala takes over and it and it won't let the thalamus function very well to send information up to your cortex. Instead, the amygdala is gonna take that information and send signals down into your body to have you fight or fly or flee or freeze. And so the amygdala is tiny little thing, I say. It's little but it's wise. It's a terror for its size. <laughs> and so um, so the amygdala is a very it's it's like the kingpin. Even though it's really small, it's a real kingpin in your limbic area because it has so much power to redirect things. And so the limbic area is the emotion center. Now, let me explain. When I say spiritual, I'm going to talk to you about God's influence on us. But you know, we have a human spirit also. Okay. And that tends to be social and emotional like attitudinal you know what what emotional state am i in right now that affects my spirit so i make a distinction between um you know human spirit and god's spirit but i also want you to know that i firmly believe that every single one of these three parts, is especially benefited by the influence of God um, on the whole of who we are. You know, when I was presenting, when I was defending my dissertation at Andrews, Dr. George Akers, Does anyone know him? He, uh huh. He used to be the. The worldwide director of education for the general conference. And he was one of the, my committee members. And, uh, he died recently. And, um, and Dr. James Tucker, who was, um, President Clinton's number two choice for director of education at the federal level. And he's an Adventist. And, um, And then Shirley Freed was on my committee. But Dr. Akers said to me when I was presenting, he said, Linda, he said, you're talking, you know, about this atmosphere that surrounds us. He said, you know how um, uh, Ellen White talks about this atmosphere of God's spirit that surrounds the earth? And he said, have you thought much about that? And I said, yes, I have. In fact, I've done some research with an organization. They tend to get a little new agey, and so I don't work with them on everything, but they have equipment so that they can analyze the heart rate variability data that I collect, and they do it for me for free, where otherwise it would cost me like $10,000 for each of my students' research in this area. And so... Um, they're wonderful people, but they do kind of get a little Eastern religion-y, which makes me a little uncomfortable, because I feel that God needs to be our center, not self. You know, uh, if it's self, you know, we we truncate. But when God is our center, you know, I mean, there is no limit. And so, um, so anyway, um, there is so much I want to share with you that, um, that I need to hurry on my way and stop digressing. So here's the cortex. This is for conscious thought and higher-order thinking. This is the mental component. The limbic system, this green and yellow area, is sensing, emotion, and short-term memory. And then the brainstem cerebellum is information intake and output. It's the physical uh, part. It's kind of like the axon on the neuron, okay? So um, so there again, you have that uh, triad fractal represented. And so now let's look at the whole of who we are. We looked at the microscopic neuron, and then we looked at the brain. I'm going to show you the heart in a few minutes. And then now we're going to look in the big picture at the whole of who we are. So the brain is the mental part, the body is the physical part, and the heart is the spiritual part. And you may think I'm getting a little too figurative, when I say the heart is the spiritual part, but hang with me, I hope to convince you otherwise. And so here we, you know, have brain, mental, heart, spiritual, body, physical. And so here is the triad again. Okay, so now let's continue on. So now I'm gonna do circles. Instead of triangles, I'm going to do circles with these three parts. So look, here is the neuron, the soma being the mental, social, emotional, and physical. Now let's add those three descriptors, and then we'll go cortex of the brain. The limbic system is the spiritual, and the brainstem, cerebellum, is the physical. Now let's, oh, I don't have time. You know, I talked to you about proprioception, right? And here's neurochemistry and cortical function. So that's another layer. And then you have mind, body, and spirit, okay? Which has been around forever. But, but watch this. I, probably many of you are already ahead of me in this regard. Even when I present at Harvard, There are always people in the audience, even if I don't show this slide, they'll come up to me during the break, and they'll say, have you considered that that um, you could add another circle to your thing, and I'll show you what they're talking about. So there you have um, the brain, and there's that other one, and mind, body, and spirit, and then what about this? God the Father as being the ultimate authority, God the Son as being the physical component. He came and physically became one with us, died for us physically, and made it possible for us to have eternal life physically, eternally. And then God the Holy Spirit is the spiritual component. And so this triad, um, you know, when scripture says, and God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, I would like to share with you that I believe that this is like the thumbprint of God on every neuron, every cell of your being. It's like the thumbprint of God on your brain, on the whole of who who we are. It's like, excuse me, in loving um, creatorship, he created you. And not only created you in his image, he took enough time to put his thumbprint on every cell, every molecule of your entire being. You belong to him, and he belongs to us. I mean, isn't that beautiful? So one day I was presenting at Fuller Theological Seminary, and at the break, I was presenting this same presentation, but it was a little more expanded. And um, and so during the break, a man came up to me and he put his card down on my podium and he said, and I looked at it and it said, Dr. Andrew Wong, and he was Asian, and, um, and I looked at his card even a little more closely. He was at UCLA Medical Center, the chief of rheumatology. And here, this brilliant mind, you know, and who dwarfs me, um, this brilliant mind put his card here, and he said to me, Linda, you don't take your fractal deep enough. And I said, why? What do you mean? He said, I study DNA all the time, and your fractal also applies to DNA. And, you know, I mean, that was just a beautiful affirmation because this isn't mine, folks. This, So let me tell you why I say that. So, you know, when you study neuroscience, you are just, del- you know, you're just inundated with all kinds of evolution, evolutionary thinking. And evolution, by the way, did you know they are now disclaiming you know in the in the sciences they are disclaiming the big bang theory I have I have a slide in another presentation I do it's from one of the major european science journals and it says big bang theory is not accurate and uh, and yet that has been pushed down our throats for Decades, we kids in public schools have been forced to um, buy in to the Big Bang Theory. So now, where was I? Um, um, I lost my train of thought. Okay, this is because I'm getting senile. Okay, <laughs> with my old age. Um, so what? Huh? Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, he was talking about that DNA. And then I went from there to um, um, the evolution. But I, the point that I was after, it was a tangential thing. So I'll have to, maybe it will resurrect in my mind in, in just a few minutes if God wants me to. Okay, so now look at this next slide. So... Here, at the Adventist Church. Oh, so you know, going. This is not what I was trying to remember. But when you think about the Godhead, God the Father, you know, in the Book of James, um, I think it's James one seventeen. Um, he says, uh, refers to God as the Father of all lights. So let me go back there. Oh, okay. So, you know, um, so we, you know, when we say that we have become really um, enlightened, you know, it means that we have, you know, gained a certain perspective of knowledge, and so I identify God, the Father, with light, because James, in the book of James, he refers to God as the Father of all light's and um and then God the son as the physical and God the Holy Spirit as the spiritual but you can't separate them out they are three in one and so even though i'm showing them in separate categories here if you look at the son in the you know in first john no i mean in the yeah in the book um first john he Christ refers to himself as the light and he, he's the source of light. He's the source of love and he's the f- source of life. He says, I am life. I am light. I am love. And that again, you know, life, light and love. And so you'll see why I'm pointing this out to you in a little bit. But Jesus refers to himself as all three. And I'm sure God the Father and God the the Holy Spirit do the same thing. Just like you can't have a brain without those the cortex, the limbic system, and the brainstem cerebellum. You can't have the brain that we have without all three parts. They are integrally connected and related. You can't separate them from each other. Because the neurons, you know, and their dendrites and so on, they're so interconnected. It's like, um, um, oh, what's his name? Um, oh me, the guy who uh, the naturalist that went all over the West and saved our um, the land for our uh, national park. Not Ansel Adams, but um, who? John Muir. Who? John Muir. John Muir, yes. John Muir. He says, pull anything out of our world, and you will find that it is connected to every other particle of the universe. And that's true of the brain. You pull one little piece out, and you find it's connected all over the place. And so um, so the same with, you know, the Godhead. You, we can't justify separating them as individuals because we are told they are three in one. And so, oh, I'm going backwards, sorry. Okay, so now we have the Adventist church. So, um, so the Adventist church is three in one. We have Adventist education, the mental part. We have Adventist ministry, the spiritual part, and Adventist health, the physical part. And we need to make sure that they all stay in place under the guidance of, you know, the church. And, um, if we're going to remain whole. And so, um, but look, look at this one. I mean, th- this occurred to me one day when I was, um, doing my scripture. Study. So here's, you know, the God of light, the God of love, and the God of life. And so, you know, this is mental, spiritual, physical. And so the law, you know, the law is very important. But if we stretch the law piece way out, the other two are going to collapse, and that's not good. If we stretch the works piece and try to work our way into heaven, that's not going to work either. And neither does it work when we are so focused on grace that we diminish the value of the law and works. They're all three important, and they all three need to be honored equally as much. And so look at this. Um... New Scientist, this is the most popular journal among uh, medical professionals in Europe, and it's full of evolution, by the way. It's, um, it does have a lot of very interesting information, but you want to read it with your, you know, your mindset um, that, you know, I mean, just be aware that it's full of, um, de- of um, uh, evolution. So they're saying, why space has exactly three dimensions? I mean, these, these fractals are all over the place. I see them everywhere. So now this, uh, this thing of, um, you know, I should stop for a few minutes and let you take a break. And, um, and then, you know, if you want to get a drink of water, and, um, or if you have questions, if you want to stick by and I'll chat with you while you get a drink. So others get a drink of water, that's just fine. Mhm. Anybody have a question?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, don't hesitate to get up and go. I'll wait for you. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: DNA. In women's women? Women's Oh. There it is. I don't know
1: Do you have do you have
0: a reference
1: for that? I can't because
0: I think that. I believe that with all my heart.
1: They, um, they found, they did a research to try for uh, to women who had male um, uh, children who had some kind of deficiency in the brain. Or yeah. And they wanted to see if they can do something before the baby is born to help that happen. Uh-huh. So they did this study on women's brains and collecting DNA. Uh-huh. They That's, right. mm-hmm. That's what this mm-hmm. said. And I can get that for you uh-huh. from a doctor, a chiropractor, adventist. Oh, I would really love to have that. So they did a lot of study in
0: the DNA. Uh-huh. And they found out that some of these
1: women had a lot of different male DNA. Yeah. You know, it is a fact. Uh-huh. It's a fact already mm-hmm. that the male she carried would have...
0: Isn't uh, that forever, precious. Is that, that is precious. Do you, I know, and you know that's the reason why I don't want to date anybody else after my because I'm or preserving myself there. for my husband. hmm And uh so they ask these women if
1: they would be willing to do these experiments. Uh-huh. They found out and she has been, still it is stored in her brain.
2: Oh no, they
1: did this. Yes. But now they're going through where I went and I started going to see more of Of oh,
0: the that's precious. Of her family.
1: Is, it is that really precious? Oh, if what you a... Your so
0: you know, I wish I had my cards. Okay, well, to Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. Really okay. Oh, what's your name?
1: Vera. Vera,
0: Vera. 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 Baclow. Oh, you were a... Cr- were you. A cross yeah, okay. Yes, very good. Yes. My spatial reference. That's is okay. Horrible. That's right. <laughs>
1: yeah, but that Thank I'm you, Vera. I really, really
0: appreciate
1: that. I'll get... Our Adventist chiropractor goes into some of these things that we found, and he researches and his, his son does too. Yes. And so I'll, I'll reach out to him and find out if he has... Oh,
0: well, I would be so grateful. All right. Very good. How?
1: I want to make this quick and right to the point where I'm just getting distracted. I had an article that said about people with the long hair. Uh-huh. Uh, transmits uh, all kinds of information. Um, oh, I have never old, heard never that. Uh huh. Like okay, mm-hmm. so that that knows that. Secondly, but,
0: but that doesn't mean it's not true. You know, right. it just means that I haven't been exposed to that. All right. And then the other
1: thing is what you were saying about you were saying about what the the uh, physical and the spiritual and the mental and that triangle comes down uh-huh. uh, when these things are taken out of public school. You seem like you avoided about the spiritual. Uh, Right off the bat, those public schools they, they, they kick out the
0: spiritual. Oh yeah. Well, mm-hmm. that they, this, this That's right. right yeah, one, I game. have a presentation I do on that, but I, I can't get all of it in. But you know, it's like modernism and postmodernism, right. Right. and they want to diminish. You know, now they want to diminish the um, the spirituality thing. You know, um, you know. I mean, it's just. Yeah, I These
1: have a... Yes. Mm-hmm. Think... Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. Uh-huh. hmm you about what About what? You mentioned about supporters, of doctor that was picked by Clinton. Uh-huh. Keep in mind, you know, Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, you do you know James Tucker? He's written... I mean, he's a wonderful Seventh day Adventist Christian. And he, he's, um, he was at Andrews and he's retired now. But, um, but he, when I asked him, I said, would you have gone to work for Clinton? And he said, no. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. he said, yeah. yeah. I'm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You're black, Russian? Or- mm hmm. Uh huh.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of us have an intuition. Uh huh. Right, mm-hmm. right, yes. Right, so can you to explain about, that about well,
0: if I I won't have time to. Um, you know, I do have some. Um, you know, have some affiliation with some researchers on intuition and so on. If you want me to share with you some writing some articles on that that um, but you know I mean it's so easy for that intu- those intuition things to get sidetracked over into a like a new age perspective but they're definitely God has given some of us stronger intuitive powers than other people and you know I think I think women you know Probably because, you know, I mean, maybe it's it's developed because when they're caring for their children, you know, they just read their kids more and intuit what their kids are thinking and feeling and needing. And um, but but intuition, it's fascinating. But it's really easy for people who get into intuition to be kind of sidetracked, get sidetracked.
1: Yeah. 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 Yes.
0: Well, I think, you know, I know some people who, who are, um, Christians and they, they do yoga, but it's, um, but, you know, I don't, but,
1: yeah, we, we ready? Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Number seven. Well, mm-hmm. uh-huh. so,
0: so you, you, you know, I know what you know that God kind of you know, He likes that number. And if you will remind me, I'll tell you about um, the research where they were watching you know, on the different cycles like the second, the uh, minute, the hour, the day, the week, the month, the year, and all of that, and so the father of chronobiology at, and you know, circadian cycles at University of Minnesota was Franz Hallberg, and he um, called Dr. Bakken and they were talking the other day and well this is like two or three years ago and Dr. Bakken said uh, um, he said have you ever picked up on any of these cycles in single celled animals you know like protozoa and and Hallberg said yes as a matter of fact we have in a single cell and Dr. Bakken said which of the cycles the hour, the minute. He said, it's the seven-day cycle. Isn't that interesting? I haven't seen the research on it,
3: but... Uh, I studied number seven in Revelation. Yes. In, in John's
0: writings.
3: To me it's amazing. Yeah. They call it the chiastic. chiastic yes, yes, realize. I it's am. Yes, I
0: know. I know. You know, oh my... Okay, okay, I can go ahead. Okay, um, folks, I'm going to go ahead and continue on, and we'll look at this wholeness and holiness. Um, one day, oh you know, I started to tell you about why I feel that what I'm sharing with you is, you know, a gift from God. And so... Every day when I would sit down to write my dissertation. The dissertation, by the way, is 533 pages that I had to write in order to, um, you know, deal with the topic that I had chosen. So what I chose to do was to look at what neuroscience was saying that relates to education, And I compared that with what Ellen White said to educators 100 years ago. Both bodies of information are very large. And that's why it's 533 pages. And so each day when I would um, sit down to um, start my research, I would be, uh, you know, I, I promised God that I would give him at least one hour of, um, uninterrupted time every day that I was working on my dissertation. And so, <clears throat> so, uh, because the, the neuroscience was so full of evolution. And, um, and I, f- I wanted to listen to what they were saying, but I also wanted to preserve my, or to honor my, you know, uh, Christian perspective, and so um, I would, the first thing I would do would I, is I would open up Scripture, and I would study, and I usually I was so drawn to the writings of John, you know, the apostle, and I I would just read his writings over and over again. And, um, and so, after I would study Scripture, and that usually was between a half an hour to an hour just studying the Scripture, and then I would be so full of ideas, I would start writing in my journal, and I filled books, you know, of journal entries, And because it took me about a year and a half to write my dissertation. And then I would, after I journaled, I would sing praises to God, and then I would pray. And um, and that routine, sometimes I would look at the clock, and not just one hour had passed. Sometimes it was as much as three hours that I would be so engrossed in how I had studied the neuroscience the day before, and then i was into the study of scriptures and it was like god was bringing to me all of these you know insights into how our brain functions and uh he was complementing what the neuroscience was saying and so what now after i finished my dissertation and i was writing an article for something and um And my husband came into my study and he said, he said, What are you doing? I said, Oh, I'm just writing an article. And I said, Sweetheart, I think holiness and wholeness are the same thing. And he said, Oh, I don't know if I would go that far. Now he's a seminary a seminarian, okay? And he was such a student of the Bible. I mean, he would get up at 3 or 4 in the morning, and he would be out in the hills overlooking Los Angeles and weeping and praying for that city. And then he would come back to our home and sit down with his Bible and, and read the Bible for Two, two hours or so before he went to his office. And so, um, so when he said, I'm not so sure, I said, well, I am. And he said, oh, let me think about it. So about two weeks later, he was in his study, I was in not mine, and he came in quite sheepishly <laughs> and he said, I have something to share with you. Okay, so you see this, but look at this. This is from Ellen White. Holiness is wholeness to God. The soul is is surrendered to God. The will and even the thoughts are brought into subjection to the will of Christ. The love of Jesus fills the soul and is constantly going out in a clear, refreshing stream to make glad the hearts of others. And um, you know, and I and he's he gave me a hug and he said, I'm so sorry. He said, I think the Holy Spirit was guiding you and I tried to discourage it. And um, I mean it was just precious. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't put it up there for you, did I? And so, yeah, there's the quote that I just read to you. And so um, in Hebrews, it says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And so this fractal construct, it isn't just a good idea. It isn't just the thumbprint of God on every cell of who we are. It's a requirement that we honor it in order to be with God in heaven. And so holiness and God-likeness. I am the Lord who makes you holy. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we're created in his image. Notice three holies. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. You ought to live holy and godly lives. And so holiness is wholeness to God. And so now I'm leading you to, um, to another uh, section of what the presentation is all about. So um, let me share with you this idea. Um, In one of the textbooks, uh, biological psychology is one of the courses that I taught, and sometimes I still teach at La Sierra. I go back there in the summertime to teach, and I continue to mentor the master's students and some of the doctoral students in their research even though I'm in Ohio. And um, so I've been working all day at the school of, you know, in Sheffield Village, and then I go to my room in the hotel, and I have to work with my doctoral and master's students until about midnight. And um, and then I get up at 5 the next morning, and it, it goes for, you know, um, not being very whole uh, in regards to my sleep. But this is a temporary thing. I'm here to help the school because Mrs. Sinka, you know, has cancer. And so I told them I would volunteer to come and help them. So let me share with you about um, some of, you know, the information on cells. So here's a cell. When a cell gets invaded by a virus, you know, the virus gets in, and the virus, I mean, the cell knows that it has been invaded, and it will take a little particle of that virus, and it puts it on a stem, and that stem will punch a hole in the cell's own membrane, and that particle is on the end of that little stem, and it waves it around as if to say to the immune system, Hey, immune system, I've been invaded by a virus. Come and kill me to save the rest. Now, isn't that a beautiful example of self-sacrificial um, good for the whole? It's the spirit of Jesus at the cellular level isn't it i mean we are put together in such miraculous and such an integral way and so now if that cell didn't have you know do you know what intelligence is intelligence by dictionary definition is the ability to um utilize information that is intelligence. And so that cell had some information come into it, and it not only interpreted that information, it took a piece of it and stuck it out here for the purpose of destroying itself to save the others. Now, that takes at least a certain element intelligence at the cellular level. Well, if you think about the triad fractal, you know, nobody else talks about this triad fractal, okay? So if you go talk to other people about it, they're not going to know what you're talking about because they didn't write the dissertation that I did. This is what I postulated in the dissertation. So I just want to give you that heads up. I'm not trying to bring, you know, focus to me. I just want you to know that if you talk to somebody else about it, they won't know what you're talking about. So so this thing of intelligence at the cellular level, it's not a New Age idea. You know, I truly believe it is well-founded, and um, based on my study of scripture and the neuroscience. So I was, I was on sabbatical a few years ago and I took an advanced neuroscience class to refresh and update at University of Southern California. And um, they have a wonderful neuroscience department there. And so I was sitting in the class. And Dr. Larry Swanson was the guest lecturer. And he it was at that time the president of the Society for Neuroscience. You can only be part of that society by invitation. And um, and so um, so I went up to him at the break, and I said, Dr. Swanson, do you think there is intelligence at the cellular level, and he looked at me, and he said something like, you just earned your A-plus for the day for even asking the question. He said, I absolutely think there is intelligence at the cellular level. and He said, but if you share that idea with a number of other people, they will not agree with you. And so now I'm going to share another well it's not next but in a few minutes I'll share another bit of information with you about what happens in cells that hopefully will convince you even more to come along with me and what I think okay but um so <clears throat> so I want you to think about this you know I talked about how important it is for us to have balance in that triad. So some there are times when we do need to stretch out the mental piece a little bit more, but then it needs to go back and allow the other sides to have some of their, you know, extra time. And so on. and it doesn't mean that you need to be absolutely in balance at every moment of all times, but you're always striving for it. And so on this slide, um, the question, should sustained physical, mental, spiritual balance be an ultimate goal? Well, the answer, in a sense, would be no, because sustained balance, you know, if I'm just always in perfect balance, like right now, I'm in perfect balance, and if I move, I'm going to tip over, Okay? So, if you are in perfect balance and you just stay that way, you could be like the Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman who, when I was at one of the, it is written, um, uh, presentations, they, um, this Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman came to me and he, after I shared this information. He said, you know, He said, when I have to stand on guard duty and I can only bat my eyes, I can't move. He said, even though it may be zero degrees outside, he said, after about a half an hour of standing there without being able to move, he said, I start perspiring. And he said, and my muscles start hurting. He said, it's miserable to have to do that for an hour. And um, and I shared with you about the Dead Sea. You know, the Dead Sea is just always taking in and never giving back. And so the problem is that sustained balance, in this world at least, now when we get to heaven it may not be this way, but in this world if we are just constantly in balance then stasis is going to set in. And stasis is precursor to rigor mortis, and you know what that is. And so we need to keep in mind that disequilibration is vitally important. If if you break your arm and they put a cast on it, within just a few days, your muscle is going to atrophy. And and so We need to keep moving, and so disequilibration is vital to thriving. The striving for balance is what it's all about. It's critical to survival. Dr. George Yavor was one of, he was one of the biochemists at, um, Lomalinda Medical School, and he retired recently, and, um, And he says that life is dependent on disequilibration, at least in a perfect world. So he says that living matter is constantly trying to move toward a perfect state of balance because we want to be comfortable. But when we get too comfortable and too in balance, the life goes out of it when he studies living matter if it arrives at balance and stays there it dies and so service learning to the church to the community to the school to you know it's not just a good idea it is vital to our healthful survival we have three parts of wholeness But there's a critical need for disequilibration and service to others. And so um, when we serve others, then these are some of the benefits. It's an antidote for self-centeredness. And um, it's the best way to truly learn something is to teach it to someone else. So if we learn it, then when we teach it to someone else, it's going to store in long-term memory. You hear teachers say, the kids went for summer break and they came back and they don't know anything now, and we have to reteach it over again. And I say to them, because I train teachers at La Sierra, I say to them, you didn't teach it in the first place so that it registered in long-term memory. If, so often, especially in public schools, they review, 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 and then they rush the kids into the testing room and give them the test. In the first place, you need to test the kids in the room where they learned it. In the second place, all you're doing is checking short-term memory when you do that. If you want to know what a child has learned, you teach it to them and you reteach it and you reteach it and you reteach it and then you wait at least two weeks and then you test them without reviewing them. And what they can tell you after two weeks is what they really learned. And so the best way to truly learn something is to teach it to others. And long-term potentiation of new knowledge happens when we share it with other people. And the best way to truly test a student is to watch them teach what they learned to somebody else. And that's the best way, not paper and pencil test. And so, um, okay, so now here, this is with apologies to Albert Einstein, okay? So this is a metaphor, okay? It is not a quantitative correlation. It's a metaphor. So he says energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. And so I say the E would be well said or well stated as educational or human potential, it, that's like an energy, isn't it? An energy, this kind of energy, is equal to the mass of who we are mentally, physically, and spiritually. That's the triad. But it needs to be multiplied by the speed of light squared. And I say, multiply this fractal by service to others mentally, physically, and spiritually. So service to others. This is my equation for um, uh, tapping into human potential. But if you really want to get tap into human potential, then this is what you need to do. Um, Same thing, but it needs to be multiplied by the God of light and life and love, and he, you know, um, he nurtures us, all three parts of who we are, and so, um, now, having said this, I want to, I always want to um, remind my audiences that, you know, when I say that God's thumbprint is on every cell of our being, I want you to be guarded against pantheism. That's what tripped up Kellogg, remember? And, uh, during Ellen White's time. And so, uh, consider this. That, um, that pantheism says the universe and God are one and the same. I mean, that's not, that's not good. God has no existence Independent of the universe. Therefore, it is not its, he is not its creator. And, um, pantheism says the divine is in all things. It is equated with totality of all. And I am not implying any of this. Um, Spinoza was a pantheist. Um, the, they say the universe is not conscious, but pantheists, or or we say the universe is not con- conscious, but pantheists worship it. Ancient religions were often uh, pantheists. And uh, pantheism tolerates all gods in rare interpretation. Okay, now um, um, that's what pantheism says, not what I'm saying. Okay, so now with that, you know, um, with that statement, I want to not forget to mention this book to you. This, um, uh, there's more than one book on the market called Spark, but this one is written by um, John Ratey at uh, Harvard University. He's a psychiatrist. And the reason I'm so into this is because, um, you know, in schools, we don't always provide the physical activity for kids that they need to learn best. And this book talks about how a school in Chicago was rated way down here. It's in North Chicago. Um, it was rated way down here, and it was in an affluent area of Chicago. And so um, the P.E. teacher, one day, he was watching how many of the kids, you know, when, some, when they were doing, like, basketball practice, a lot of the kids were sitting on the side, and they weren't participating. And he thought, this isn't good. And so he started a program where he challenged the kids and they would come early to school and he would individually chart their capabilities physically and then he would have them run laps uh, around this uh, track and they would be competing against themselves, trying to beat their own record. And... um, And so they did that for a year. That's the only change they made in the entire school, the only change curriculum-wise. And so the kids then were tested, and woof! What happened was they went from way down here internationally to number one Around the world in science. And their other scores came up also. And it, he, you know, and so they, this book dwells on that. It's a fascinating read. Really, really a good, uh, thing for teachers to know about especially. Okay, now, I told you I was going to tell you about the cells in your body. Okay, so now look at this. I'm just gonna go ahead and put all of them here. So on average, every second, every cell is in your, this is on average, every cell in your brain body is producing 2,000 proteins every second. Every second! You just did 2,000 more, and 2,000 more, and 2,000 more, and it's not only producing 2,000 proteins every second, but it's selecting approximately 500,000 amino acids, 10 million atoms, organizing them into strings, joining them, shaping them, shipping to sites inside and outside the cell and the needs are always changing they 're not just shipping to the same site over and over again they The cell has to know where they're being needed somehow this now do you think a cell could do that? Do you think you could produce two thousand proteins every second? Well, you are, but you're not doing it consciously are you and um I mean, this is, um, it's mind-boggling. And um, somehow, these cells are filled with intelligence. Now, I'm taking this from the book, The Hidden Face of God. It's written by Gerald Schroeder. He's a Jewish man, and I don't agree with him totally on his idea of the creation. You know, I think he believes in long ages of the earth, but he believes that God created the earth. He believes that we are, um, you know, creatures of God's creation. And uh, he lives in, uh, he's an MIT grad. He's a brilliant mind. And even though I disagree with him on, you know, the creation bit, his book is absolutely did I go up? No. His book is full of fascinating information, like I just shared with you on this slide. Um, I have read that book probably four or five different times. It is truly fascinating, but you have to be careful because he has a different concept of, um, of you know, creation. Okay, so. Um, So, now thinking about this cell that is creating 2,000 proteins every second, in order for that cell to create protein, it has to have protein. And you know, those amino acids that it has to have in order to create uh, additional amino acids, um, it has to get from your food, which is coming in from the diet. That you are uh, you're providing, so you ask the question: Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And so you know it's just another um, evidence that we have a Creator God, someone who knew how to put us together the way He did. Okay, now I am out of time, but I want to share with you this thing of the heart brain connection can you stay with me a little longer if if some of you want to leave it won't hurt my feelings at all okay so pastor is this okay is it <laughs> it's not the telomere thing but i'll send you that okay yeah and but this is the heart brain thing that dr Bakken shared with me And so, um, I mean, he led me, you know, Earl Bakken gave, um, well, I better stay on track because I'm holding you late. And so look, the heart is a significant component in cognition. Now, this is not just a recent concept, but it's more literal than figurative. You know, um, Uh, Let's think about the history of the heart, for instance. In ancient times, and like in biblical literature, the heart in the King James Version is referred to more than 830 times, and in many of those instances, it refers to the heart as if the heart has thinking capacity. Okay, so as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And I have a whole bunch of texts that are similar to this. The mind is referred to uh, less than 90 times in the King James Version. And so, but, you know, the, the, the facts of the case are, now because of how we're understanding the heart-brain connection, we know that they are constantly communicating with each other to create mind. Now, the concept of mind, you know, when I was studying at USC, they one of the questions on the final exam was, what is the question that drives neuroscientists Crazy, or they didn't use it. They didn't put it that way, but that's what they were saying. And the answer is, they can't. They can't explain how the mind comes to be, and they can't explain how the eye causes vision to happen. They can tell you how a photon can come in and go back to the retina and go onto the optic nerve, into the optic chiasm, and back to the occipital lobe and the columns of the, um, you know, of the occipital lobe in V1, V2, V3, and V4. But they can't tell you how all of these patterns that you're seeing simultaneously are coming together to give you vision, and it drives them buggy. They really get uptight about it. They say, this is what they teach you, that the brain is merely an organ that is highly developed in recognizing patterns. You don't really have a mind. Your mind is merely um, your brain's ability to recognize patterns. But in one of the textbooks, is this thick? That was my textbook. At USC, and on one of the pages that is talking about the eye, um, it says it's a miracle. You know, neuroscience doesn't believe in miracles, <laughs> but in the textbook it says it's a miracle. I mean, and so mind, you know, um, mind—they're—they're they're thinking now that mind is like the collective intelligence from all over your brain and your body, that somehow it all comes together. Well, we, you know, in my mind, it's just, it's a miracle of God. You know how it just, it's just that ability that God gives us. And I don't think we're going to understand how it works until we get to heaven. And so now there is a new field of study called neurocardiology they're studying the neurons in the heart and uh, polyvagal theory as well. And there's a new field called psychophysiology. The behavior, psycho means behavior, the study of behavior. And physiology is like how your physiology is contributing to your psyche. And so, and then Earl, I, I just put this on here so you could see Dr. Bakken's name. And, uh, he gave 7.3 million to the Cleveland Clinic back around 2003. And, um, and he, it was called the Earl and Doris Bakken Heart-Brain Research Institute. And, um, but they didn't use the money the way they had articulated that they would, and so he jerked it out and gave it to another uh, institution. I think it was University of Minnesota. And so Dr. Bakken has been mentoring me for 13 years in this heart-brain science. And so... um So when you study the heart in scripture, I'm just going to flash these on the screen. I won't read it because my voice is going to give out, okay? But I'll just show you some of these interesting ones. Okay, so, you know, during uh, biblical times, they referred to the heart as like the center of the soul. And that was true up until, uh, you know, that's how the heart was thought about, up until about the middle of the 17th century, when Dr. William Harvey, um, be, he started studying the heart in a very significant way. And at that time, um, uh, when he started doing that, then the heart, we started thinking of the heart as merely a physical pump. And um, the brain replaced the heart as the, like the center of our being. And Ellen White, you know, as Pastor described this morning, you know, um, Ellen White talks about the heart being the capital. And, um, and so now how they're describing the difference between the heart and the brain, the heart, I mean, the brain is now being referred to as the survival organ and the heart as the thriving organ. And so the the neurons in the heart, like there are gangs, little gangs of them, we call them ganglia. that means little gangs of neurons, and um, there are about forty thousand of those gangs of neurons, which is small compared to a hundred billion neurons in the brain. and so the um, but I'm going to share some. Very interesting um, facts with you in just a moment. So the heart and the brain really work together a lot. You have a vagus nerve that um, it starts right about um, the top of the brain stem, and it goes down into your spinal cord, and it influences your lungs, and your it influences and is influenced by your lungs your heart your you know the major organs it, throughout your body and um and so look at this so this is uh, you know you have the brain uh for the mental the body is the physical and the heart you know how the neuron has to have that neurochemistry for one neuron to talk to the other? Well, the heart makes neurochemistry just like your brain does. Not this, not every one of them that the brain makes, but a lot of them, and I'll show you a little list of those. So, the brain is kind of the go-between. Between, I mean, the heart is the go-between between the brain and the body, and the heart so the heart produces neurochemistry, it puts it into the blood, and the blood goes all throughout your brain and body, and it carries that neurochemistry with it. And so uh, remember, we're saying the body is the physical, the heart is like the spiritual, it's carrying the neurochemistry through the, the blood, and the brain is the mental And so here are some of these interesting heart facts. The heart contains neuron-like structures, a little brain in the heart. And I'll show you pictures of those neurons in just a minute. The heart's amplitude is 40 to 60 times greater than the brain's electrical amplitude. And I'm a little fearful because when I just have a short period of time to share this information with you, you may get misconceptions because I need to explain it enough. So be careful when you go out and share what I've, you know, um, said to you um, because you need to do some additional reading and if you email me, I'll be happy to give you some additional readings to do. So... um so this amplitude, you know, we can measure the heart's amplitude with squid magnetometers, okay, and with other things as well. And uh, and the electromagnetic field with squid magnetometers, we can measure the heart's uh, uh, electromagnetic field, and you can measure it out about three feet with no difficulty. But you can some of the squid magnetometers. You can go about eight feet away, and it can pick up on your electromagnetic field. Whenever an electron or electricity flows, it creates um, an electromagnetic field that goes in the curl in the direction of the curl of your fingers on your right hand when your thumb is pointed upward. This is in physics. This is called the right-hand rule. If you're in um, South America, it's the same thing, but you're upside down. Okay? But I went to Ecuador, you know, and the equator goes right through it. And if you're on this, the south side, the water when you pull the plug out of a sink or a tub, it will go clockwise, and if you're on this side, it will go counterclockwise. I saw it. I wish I had more time to tell you about it, And um, but in the northern hemisphere, it's the right-hand rule. It's the right-hand rule also down there, way down under, but you're upside down, okay? And um, And so uh next point so the heart is unlike all other muscles it generates its own electrical energy in utero you your heart developed at around 10 to 12 days and it started beating that soon and um but your brain Uh, was, it was later when your brain started developing and functioning. So your heart doesn't depend on the electrical energy coming from your brain like your, you know, your heart doesn't, but all the other muscles in your body do. Now, as you grew and developed, there did develop connections between the heart and the brain. And so the brain does have a strong influence on your heart now, but you can be brain dead, and your heart can keep right on beating. And so so the heart has its own electrical energy. The electromagnetic field of the heart is 5,000 times stronger than the brain's EMF. So, as I mentioned, with a squid magnetometer, they can pick up on the heart's electromagnetic field, you know, like three feet away. But the brains, you can only pick up on it about two inches away. And so, your heart makes this electromagnetic field around you. This is not new age, I promise. Cross my heart and hope to die, okay? This is actual information that is not new age. Okay, so this electromagnetic field is influenced by what's going on in your heart. If love is going on in your heart, your oxytocin level is high, your heart rate variability will be a smooth sinusoidal pattern it's beautiful i've been showing the kids at noah i've i've been putting this thing on their ear and letting them see how when they're you know fearful or when they're trying to say the alphabet backwards every other letter you know they're the um uh, heart rate variability will be all disordered and incoherent, but then I tell them to stop and just start breathing deeply in and out, you know. Um, and when you do that, the lungs will make your vagus nerve settle right down, and you get this beautiful pattern. That is highly beneficial when this is going on in your heart rate variability. It improves your immune system function, your respiration, your digestion, your cardiac function, and your cognitive processing. All of those are highly benefited when love is in your heart. And not only that, it, it if affects The quality of the electromagnetic field that surrounds you and subconsciously is impressing on other people that you come close to. We don't know it. Just like when our oxytocin level goes up and other, we come close to others and they smell subconsciously, they smell our oxytocin and it causes their love to go up, you know, have you had people like I'll go shopping and I'll just walk up to a counter and I'll be looking at something and the clerk will say, what is it about you? You know, I just feel such a spirit of peace and calmness and grace in your presence. I have had four or five people say that to me. When I, you know, I wasn't thinking anything, but hopefully, you know, Jesus is so much a part of our being that other people pick up on it even when we don't know it. And so, so the oxytocin, Paul Zach is a good friend of mine. He's an evolutionist. His wife works at Loma Linda. She's a neurologist. Paul is, um, is in, he's the chair of the economics department at Claremont Graduate University, which is where Peter Drucker was. If you know business, you know Peter Drucker's name. Paul is just a wonderful human being, and his wife works at Loma Linda in the hospital. And Paul is not only an economist, he studies neuroscience, and he set up a Uh, department at Claremont called the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and people say what does neuroscience have to do with economics and he says the stock market is driven by pleasure, choice and trust we want to understand trust better so we study oxytocin and so if you if you want to see something really interesting, go on TED.com and and go and search for um I go YouTube and then look for TED dot com with Paul J Zach and you can see a presentation that he makes. You want the one that has the dark background and um he's he's evolutionist but he has some very interesting He'll uh, take a a syringe of oxytocin, and he sprays it into the air. And do you know, they can, uh, in their research, they have brought people into a room, and and they'll spray oxytocin without the people knowing it, and it causes them to be more trusting. You can take advantage of people that way. You know, you have to, you can be manipulated. And so... (laughs) So look at this next one. The heart is a sensory organ. It sends more signals to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. Now, I was at the Cleveland Clinic for a heart-brain summit. Dr. Bakken was there with me. And um, there was a lady, Pavelescu. um uh, that was her last name. She's from Europe and, um, and she's a medical doctor, a neurologist, and a specialist in research in epilepsy. And so she studies epileptic patients. She puts EEG on an epileptic patient and an ECG. And she watches because she knows, you know, that they have seizures every so often, and so she hooks them up to this equipment, and she says a full four minutes before the brain seizes, the heart shows that it's going to happen, and the heart produces neurochemistry that goes all through the blood, all throughout your brain and body, and somehow it extrudes through your breath, or the pores of your skin, we know it it extrudes through your breath, but we think it's also coming from the pores of your skin as well, and animals can pick up on it. And we pick up on it subconsciously, but animals can pick up on it consciously, and that's why dogs and monkeys can be trained to know when somebody's about to have an epileptic seizure and they can get their owner into a safe position so they won't get hurt when they seize four minutes before the cortex seizes the heart shows it's going to happen is this amazing stuff and um, like the brain the heart produces neurochemistry and the heart the brain and the body share an inter and an intra dependence now somebody asked me the other day What about, you know, if the heart has memory, what about if somebody receives a heart transplant? Well, folks, some of the people who receive somebody else's heart will deny this and they're resistant to the idea, but others of them give fascinating testimonials. So one day I was visiting with Dr. Bakken and I said to him, or he said to me, Linda, did you hear about the little boy who received the little girl's heart um, just a couple of weeks ago? And I said, no. And he said, the little girl had died and she was avidly into ballet the little boy was a rough and tumble little guy you know he was you know had nothing to do with dance or ballet or anything like that and the the physicians didn't know that the little girl was into ballet the surgeons didn't know the nurses didn't know no one other than the parents knew it of all these medical people That were responsible for taking the little girl's heart and putting it into the little boy, so the little boy received the heart. And um, after he recovered from the surgery, he was at home and just playing around. And he came to his mother and he said, "Mom, may I please take ballet lessons?" And the mother said, "What?" And you know, and he, he kept begging her. Over a period of time to take ballet lessons. There are all kinds of testimonial descriptions of things like this happening. One man was shot in the back, uh, in that muscle, you know, that shoulder muscle back there. Sorry, I can't tell you which one it is. And he said, and so he died from his injuries. And his heart was given to another man. And when that man woke up from the surgery, he had horrible pain right there in his shoulder. Same place where the donor had been shot. And, you know, these stories are just fascinating. It's all testimonial. Um, They haven't, maybe they have by now, pulled it into um, specific studies, but I haven't read it if they have. So the heart contains neuron-like structures, a little brain of its own. The heart's amplitude... Okay, this is the same thing that I just shared with you. So we can skip over. I'll, oh, I'm going to go back to this one. No, I'm not. I already told you that. And um, so here we go, next, okay, so, the heart has a little brain of its own, we're thinking fractal, okay, that's the mental piece, it functions as a sensory organ, you know, it senses when there's going to be a seizure before minutes, before the brain seizes, and that's like the social-emotional, it's picking up on neurochemistry. And it is a vital pump, so it's a physical pump. So there you have that same triad uh, fractal. And so um, this is just the same thing as I just mentioned. And this is um, basically the same thing we've been talking about. And so I'm just going to keep going. So when we do heart rate variability studies, um, the top graph that you see, that is incoherence. That's that's what you see if I put that sensor on the, um, the student's ear and I tell them to say the alphabet backwards. Okay, that's when the brain is in control, because the brain is the survival organ. But then, if if I have the student, Start breathing deeply, like four seconds in, four seconds out. And I have a little, it's like a metronome, you know, that helps them pattern their breathing. And so they, you know, will keep up with that like a metronome. And then I say, now, once you get your breathing going, try to return to your heart a feeling. I don't want you to think. I just want you to return to your heart what it feels like when the joy of the Lord is in your heart or when you're holding a little baby or when you're, you know, you're just totally at peace. And when that happens, this is what you see. It changes from up there to that lower thing. And that's when you get all of the physiological advantage Because it's so late, I won't take time to talk about the heart rate variability, but I will share with you that the people who analyze the data that I collect, they have to look at every single heartbeat. That's why it's so expensive. And so they look at all of this data. Now, it looks like up there that all those heartbeats are, it's only... 2.5 2.5 seconds of heartbeat data, they all look the same, don't they? But they're really very different. And when you're trained to know the difference, you can see. Did you know that as you get older, your heartbeats become more and more similar? And that's not good because it's an evidence that you're getting more uh, rigid, okay? You're not as flexible. You want there to be a lot of variability. That's a sign of youthfulness. So the technicians can look at your HRV, heart rate variability, and they can tell you about how old you are. And so um, so I don't like for them to look at mine anymore. <laughs> okay. So heart rate variability, you know, I'm just going to scoot over. Okay, so... Love, peace, joy, trust, and faith all increase your health and longevity of life. They decrease um, the stress hormones. They lower your blood pressure and heart rate. And they raise your immune function. And they increase survival after surgeries. And all of these things also. It also lengthens your telomeres or, and helps keep them from shortening so uh, very rapidly. But fear, apprehension, and distrust will lower your NK cell levels and immunity. NK is natural killer, natural killer cells. So it lowers the natural killer cells and your immune function. But it raises catecholamines. And catecholamines are not good. They cause sticky blood platelets and clogging potential and more oxygen demand. And it causes greater variations in heart rate and rhythm and more bouts with illness and hospitalization. I'm almost finished, okay? Okay, so look up here. This man... Um, this man had had a heart attack. This was, this data was collected about seven years ago. And they don't, today we have things we can just put right here on your chest and you don't have to put that big belt around you. And he wore it, he wore the big belt for 24 hours. He got into the car, his wife was driving because he had had a heart attack. And, you know, like uh, maybe. Uh, four or five days before. And so, look, his heart rate is about 60, maybe 65, getting close to 70 beats per minute. And then right here, he and his wife started arguing about something. Look, there's a lot more order here than there is here. I mean, this is more incoherent in his heart rate variability. And then that the discussion got more and more heated. And here it is. Look, his heart rate is about 140. He didn't realize it, but when because he had had a previous heart attack, the chance of him having another one was 40% higher when this was going on. And so, so this is over a period of one hour and so for about 20 minutes, his heart rate is way up here. I mean, he could have kicked the bucket easily. And so then the argument absolutely stopped, and they went into silence. And look, his heart rate is still up around 100, even though nobody's saying anything. For about 20 minutes more, it remained high up here. And so, um, you know, this just shows you, you know, how our emotions have such a profound impact on our heart and everything else. Now, there's a whole bunch of information I would like to share with you here, but I'm just simply going to say that, um, you know, heart rate variability is, you know, it involves electromagnetic and biophysical and heart rhythm information. This inhibits your cortical facilities. This facilitates them. And these are some of the, um, the neurochemicals that uh, your heart produces, like the brain. And up here, you know, this is the amygdala. So if this is going on, this information is going to go up here, um, and then it's going to be taken over by the amygdala. If this is going on, the amygdala is going to usurp a lot of the information that would normally go up to the cortex through the thalamus. Okay? And so that's how that goes along. So you have two branches of your um, autonomic nervous system. The sympathetic branch causes you, your pupils to dilate, so you're taking in more information. It causes your saliva to dry up. It causes your motility in your t- intestines to slow down. The digestive juices stop f- you know, functioning as much. The whole system is impacted uh, when you're at high stress level and the amygdala is in control. But you have another branch that God gave you called the parasympathetic. The, other, the rev you up is sympathetic. The parasympathetic dilutes all of that negative stuff. And that's what we do with the deep breathing because the respiration feeds directly into your vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is all involved in all of what we're talking about this afternoon. And so this is the same thing, you know. So the parasympathetic constricts the pupil, whereas the sympathetic makes it get bigger and so on. And you're welcome to have that handout, uh, any of you who would like to have that. I'm good, this is basically the same thing that we've just been talking about. And, um, and, um, so I'll skip over that and this. And, um, this is just some of the research that supports what I have been sharing with you. Now, this is what a lot of the cardiologists haven't seen especially if they haven't been updated recently. And so these are neurons in the heart. It's gangs of neurons. So um, so this is one gang of neurons. And you know what these are? Anybody have a guess? So if this is a neuron, dendrites, soma, axon... The um, axons are all coming together, and they're going from this ganglia of neurons or ganglion of neurons to another ganglion. And so, this is one ganglion. This is this is two more. Here's another one, and these are axons. You can actually see. The axons, this is taken with a confocal microscope. And look at, so this right here, look, this is a blow up of this. And so, see those kind of bumpy things? What do you think those might be? It's actually the somata, plural for soma. And so, We we don't know why they're like this, but you're seeing the somata. The dendrites are tucked inside, and the axons have come together. When you have axons coming together, axons of individual neurons, then you have a nerve, okay? And so these are nerves because it's more than one neuron or more than one axon. And so now let's take a closer look at this. Uh, This is, you know, so this is one soma, another soma, a soma, and so on. Isn't that beautiful? It's like a cluster of grapes, isn't it? And so now we're going to cut this open and look inside. And so this is where the dendrites are. Now, usually dendrites talk to axons, But in here, we're thinking that it's dendrodendritic communication, dendrites talking to dendrites, and we don't know why. And so, so where do you find these gangs of neurons? All of these dots are gangs of neurons, and you find them wherever there is fluid intake or output in the heart. And we think it's because they're creating neurochemistry, and it needs to get into the bloodstream, and that's how God wanted it to be. So now look at this one. This is one small ganglion. Look at that soma. and One, two, three, and there's another one back there, and you can actually see the individual axons. I mean, if you're really into this, this is a gorgeous picture. And if you're not, you know, it's just another picture. <laughs> so um, so we communicate with each other consciously and subconsciously. You know, someone was asking me about intuition, and I wonder if maybe intuition You know how some people have a really strong sense of smell and other people don't? And so maybe intuition has a lot to do with how your olfactory... There's a bulb right in your olfactory sense that is highly sensitive to neurochemistry like oxytocin. And so maybe some people are more sensitive to that, and it gives them a stronger intuition. I don't know, but, you know, it's something to think about anyway. And so we communicate with each other through pheromones, you know, like uh, kids when they're going through puberty and they're all in the same classroom together and they're overdosing on each other's hormones. You know, it might not be such a good idea to have them... In such close quarters all the time, huh? And um, and then oxytocin—we've talked about that. And there's doctor, there's doctor Zach. Can—is this dying? It may be. Can you hear me? Okay. So um, and then stereotype threat. There's a lot of research on that. So what I think about, what I think you think about me has a profound impact on me. And that's what we call stereotype threat. Their states of resilience and confidence, you know how you know how the Bible says oh you can't hear. This will give me a chance to get I think it is, because I've kept you too long. So... To stay here forever. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, I'll just talk loudly because we're almost finished. Okay. Oh, okay. So, <clears throat> so let's see where. Oh, so you know how the Bible says, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved." I mean, what you believe changes, oh, could I use that?
3: Yeah, just a second.
0: Yeah. What you
3: believe
0: changes every cell in your body. I mean, every cell is influenced by what you believe. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, it's like he wants us to be one with him as he and the Father are one with each other. We will never be like God, but we can be, um, you know, we will never be equal to God. I mean, but we okay, can be like Okay, I got like it. Check. Okay, it's working back there, huh? Sounds like it's working here, too. So, uh, thank you. I'll just hurry really fast. Thank you. So, <clears throat> so confidence and belief are a powerful thing. And when teachers, so Ellen White has some interesting things to say to teachers. You know, when I first came across this information about this atmosphere around you being, you know, having a scent to it and an electromagnetic field, I I was at Berkeley at the time. And I pushed back and I said to my husband, honey, this is getting really new agey and i said i'm not going to have anything to do with it and then i kept studying and i kept coming across all this other information that was really validating it and i said to my husband you know maybe that this is just what god has put into place and some people take this information and extrapolate it out improperly and um and so but you, we do have to be careful with all of this information. So, so I was thinking this way, and in my research, what I had to do is I had to pull out of the neuroscience, the major themes, and then pull out of Ellen White's writings, the major themes. So if I came across something in neuroscience, I had to go to Ellen White's writings and see if she said anything about it. I don't know why. I had never read some of these statements that I came upon. But you know how the atmosphere th- that surrounds us, y- having oxytocin in it and other people picking up on it through their breathing? And so, um, so when I went to Ellen White's writings, I typed in heart, atmosphere, and uh, one other word. I can't remember what it was. And I pressed the search thing, and I thought, I'm not going to get anything, so I'm not going to have to talk about it in my dissertation. And when I pressed search, it came poof, and there were all these statements. I couldn't heart, I could hardly believe what I was seeing. And I think I have a few of them in here. So let me, um, oh, but for this teacher thing, so, Teachers and parents, what you have in your heart, what you believe in your heart about your child and what a teacher believes about a child in their heart, it gets across to that child whether you say it out loud or not. They are reading you. Kids have a special ability to be able to know what's real and what isn't. And teachers, I say to them, don't ever enter the classroom without first inviting Christ into your heart so that the love of God can control what you are doing. It is, it is a precious uh, charge that is given to you, and, um, and do not carry it lightly. Okay, so I'm going to skip over this. Maybe I have the quotes at the end. Hopefully I do because I want you to see at least a couple of them. But, but this is one of my last slides. So, um, one day, um, Dr. Uh, McCrady at on the Institute of HeartMath called me and he said, I'm on their advisory board. Even though I don't believe in everything they're doing, I do help them from a Christian perspective. And so he said, Linda, he said, you have all the equipment. Would you go over to Santa Barbara and do some research? We're bringing in, he said, there's a clinical psychologist there who wants you to come use your equipment and help her with a research she's doing and he she's going to be bringing in a whole bunch of women who just had babies 11 weeks ago and they're we I want you to put EKG EEG and galvanic skin response uh equipment on the, the baby and the same thing on the mother and um And I said, so what is your objective? And he said, I want to see if the mother and the baby are communicating with each other even when they're not touching each other. And I said, oh, okay. She's, You know, this is what this clinical psychologist wanted to do. And so what you see here is what the data showed. And so this is... I don't. I think this is the baby's uh, ECG, uh, electrocardiogram, and this is the mother's EEG. And so the baby. See this general. So this is two different kinds of data acquisition. Okay. So, but you see this kind of pattern. You see a general thing here also, and so. We were, sh- we were showing with this data that there is synchronization that goes on. And the baby, we did it when the, ba- when the baby was close to the mother. And then I moved the baby about five feet away. And, um, and in both instances, you could, um, it got weaker the fa- farther away you moved the baby. And so, now, this is fascinating. This boy's name is Josh, and the dog's name is Mabel. And so Roland, Dr. McCready, wanted to do a research on the two of them. He put a heart halter around the dog and one around Josh, and the dog was in one room and Josh was in the other room. So they were not in the same room when they were fitted uh, with a heart halter. And so then he brought them into the same room with each other. Okay, look what happened. So this is when they were in separate rooms. This is the dog, and this is the boy. The boy's heart rate variability is really disordered. You know, it's, it's incoherent. But the dog's is a lot more coherent, but you can tell the dog is excited. The dog knows something's going to happen, and the boy is kind of dreading having to do what he's going to do. But then, right here, they come into the same room. Look, even before the dog comes into the room, it knows. You know, it starts to come to a more ordered coherence, but the boy is a little later. And so then they're in the same room with each other over this period of time. Josh enters the room and, and pets Mabel. And look what happens to uh, Josh's heart rate variability. See how much more ordered and regular it is? And the dogs, now you can't tell a dog. Breathe deeply and, you know, I mean this dog is just picking up on the love of his owner or her owner and then josh leaves the room right here so josh is going this is showing a lot of physical movement in his body and then the dog you know is leaves the room <clears throat> uh, i mean josh leaves the room but the dog wants him to stay and even though this is more excited It still is far more ordered than this is because the neurochemistry that's in us lasts quite a bit. Uh, You know, it doesn't just go away right away. So we need to get in sync with God like Josh and Mabel do. Connecting with the mind of God. um, Ellen White says, when our mind connects with the mind of God, light, you have to put all of what she says together, okay? She says, light flashes into our mind, and if our heart is open, the Holy Spirit will take residence there. And that when that happens, love has a beneficial effect on mind and body. And she says, when that happens, an atmosphere forms around us that so that when we come close to others, and they breathe in the atmosphere that surrounds us, it causes a similar thing to happen in them. And that's why I want you to see some of those quotes. So, when the heart is open to receiving the Holy Spirit, love has a profound beneficial effect, and the atmosphere forms around us that benefits others. Here's Paul Zach's information. And there's more of his information. And this is the uh, TED.com thing. Okay, listen to this. When Christ abides in the heart, the whole nature is transformed. Christ's spirit, his love, softens the heart, subdues the soul, and raises the thoughts and desires toward God and heaven. By the atmosphere surrounding us, Every person with whom we come in contact is consciously or unconsciously affected. The influence of every man's thoughts and actions surrounds him like an invisible atmosphere which is unconsciously breathed in by all who come in contact with him. This atmosphere is frequently charged with poisonous influences, and so on. Those who study the word of God and day by day receive instruction from Christ, bear the stamp of heaven's principles. A high holy influence goes forth from them. A helpful atmosphere surrounds their souls. And I'll go to the next. It is the atmosphere of grace which surrounds the soul of the believer. The Holy Spirit working upon mind and heart that makes him a savor of life unto life and enables God to bless his work. There, There is a peculiar atmosphere surrounding every man's soul, and those with whom they are associated are affected with this exhalation. This is exactly what the neuroscience is saying today. And she said it a hundred years ago. She was right on target. There is a breathing in unconsciously this atmosphere, which is often charged with poisonous miasma of habits and practices which are demoralizing. The greatest danger is when this poisonous atmosphere is not sensed and is unconsciously inhaled. The ideas that are expressed are deleterious to the mind and to the morals. Um, and let's look just at a couple more. Every teacher who has to do with the education of young students should remember that children are affected by the atmosphere that surrounds the teacher, whether it be pleasant or unpleasant. If the teacher is connected with God, if Christ abides in his heart, the spirit that is cherished by him will be felt by the children. If teachers enter the schoolroom with a provoked, irritated spirit, the atmosphere surrounding their souls will also leave its its um, impression. We use this information, you know, this heart rate variability information to help students who have failed high school exit exams over and over again, because we help them learn to move their heart rate variability from this to this because they can think better if they do that. And the research shows significant improvement uh, when we do that. We did a huge study uh, on that. We use it to get baseline um, readings, you know, and so on, and to help with athletic performance and so on. There are other quotes here and if you want these you can get them in the um, in the handout and occasionally I somebody will ask me for my dissertation and um, you wouldn't think anybody would want anything like that but they actually do occasionally want it and you this is the title of it. And if you truly do want it, you, can, you have to have this information in order to secure it. Okay, that is what I have to share with you. And the telomere thing, I'll share with your pastor. And if he decides he would like to do that sometime, then, you know, that would just be fine. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father of light and life, and love. We place ourselves before you this afternoon again after we have considered the magnificent way that you have created us it with such great complexity and yet in ways that we can understand it in the simple ways that we think. Thank you, Father. Thank you for putting the impress of your, um, your trinity upon every cell of our being, upon every part of who we are. Help us always to honor you and to keep that, uh, that thinking in our minds so that we can remember that we want to represent you in the very best ways every minute of our lives We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Okay. You're welcome. Well, I want to
3: thank you so much.
0: You are so welcome. For uh,
3: the extra hour and an extra hour. And all the knowledge what we received I think this is just uh, probably too much at this point to observe yeah. everything but no. <laughs> I think it's a good homework for us to
1: <laughs> maybe
3: uh, read it again and again and uh, meditate on those and uh, I just want to mention something that we we normally collect uh, a love offering after we are having somebody visiting us but Linda Linda was so gracious. She told me, you don't need to do that for the, these lectures. Yes, so we want must. to thank you so You're much, welcome. and God bless you. Yes. And we hope we could see you sometime in the future.
0: Yes, thank you very yeah. much.
3: Okay, and thank Happy you so much be for being so patient with us. And we hope we can see you again, maybe at another time, but yes. with some good, interesting maybe at topics. Graduation. <laughs> okay, yes, true. Thank you so much. God bless all of you.
2: I want to give you this for that. Oh, bless your heart. Okay. How oh. sweet. I, I really, it was so much information, but very good, because I am a teacher to the kids, uh-huh. and you know you're right, the atmosphere, I have a little short meeting. Oh, okay, okay, that's okay. Um, and the atmosphere, like you said, is so important, so important, they pick up you feel they really do and they feel uncomfortable Uh when you're uncomfortable Mm -hmm. when when we're fretful they are fretful yeah it's my feeling of inadequacy i think is what sometimes Mm -hmm. i bring and then i try to compensate for that and Uh i try to we all do (laughs) yeah we all have to deal and i'm dealing with these 13 Uh and 11 and 10 and 12 Uh kids and I want them so much to learn. Uh-huh. I really want them so much to learn because yes. they are going to carry on the mm-hmm. church. They uh-huh. are going to keep it alive. Oh, my. And I know.
0: And and what I'm seeing in these, um, these kids
1: that oh, yeah. are coming through
0: Noah, mm. you know, they're just so, oh, my. They're wonderful kids.
2: And my uh, Lillian Libby, you don't know her, but her husband was a doctor, and she was a uh, she worked in the operating room. But uh, she's like 95 years old uh-huh. now, and we go and visit her. And she has a lovely home. But she says her children were raised in the Seventh-day Adventist uh-huh. church. Then they went out to a college that's not a Seventh-day Adventist church. But now they're not a Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah. I know
0: my so, uh, husband said a man came into his office. He's very wealthy.